This is episode number three of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries for June 27th, 2016, which was a Monday, I believe. The third installment, uh, the first two segments have gotten a lot of plays on our SoundCloud, which, by the way, before I go any further, uh, you can download these podcasts for free off of Stitcher if you're an Android phone user, and if you use uh, a Mac or Apple or any Apple product, you can get it off of iTunes, and of course, if you have like a Windows desktop or whatever, you can do iTunes on there as well. You get the full podcast, and uh, we talk about stuff on here that we leave out in the segments that we post on YouTube, which you won't hear any of this if you are looking at the YouTube segments anyway, so it doesn't matter. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing good. How about you? I'm doing pretty good. I can't believe it's already 7.13 p.m. over here. It's, <laughs> it's uh, God, seems like this day has flown by. I know you're over in Washington, so it's it's only like, what, 4 <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's 4.14, so I still got plenty of time. But, yeah, it, it's it's crazy, you know, the differences in, in uh, time, you know, just hundreds of miles away, you know, such a difference in time. So do you want me to tell you the future, or...? <laughs> No, I'm I'm fine. I'm good. Nothing really, nothing really special happens. Just to let you know. Of course not. We're not supposed to know what our future is anyway, because there wouldn't be anything to look forward to then. So. Yeah, that's true. All right. So um, the first we- case I handpicked is one from a very early case. It was covered in one of the Unsolved Mystery specials on NBC, because before Unsolved Mysteries became a weekly show, it was a series of specials, Uh, and this one was actually from a segment, one of the specials that was hosted by Robert Stack, because there's other ones that weren't hosted by Robert Stack, like Carl Malden, I think was one of them, and some other guy, I can't really remember his name, and eventually they decided, okay, we gotta go with the man here, and that is Robert Stack. So this case is uh, the mysterious uh, death of Kurt McFall. Now, Kurt McFall was a 17-year-old kid. He was a teenager. Uh, And um, right from the beginning of this segment, they start going into this satanic panic stuff. Because back in the late 80s, this is kind of popular. It was like the go-to thing to try to add some intrigue or something else to anything to make it, I don't know, more newsworthy. Or more noticeable was to say, oh, it wasn't just a regular murder. It was a satanic murder. There was a a satanic cult that was involved here. And so this segment pretty much runs with that. Even though there's really not much that can really honestly, logically connects this case with Satanism. But, you know, they just kind of, you know, they were like, okay, we're going to sensationalize some stuff here for entertainment value. What? The news say <laughs> sensationalize something just to get more ratings? That's that that can't be. Oh yeah. Well Unsolved Mysteries sometimes does that too. But and this is definitely one of those cases. So Friends of Kurt said he was involved in a satanic cult and he wanted out. And they said that he's he said that the cult wanted to kill him, and then <laughs> days later he was found dead on the beach. So they kind of just run with the satanic thing. They interview the friend who says some things later. Uh, 
I think it's his father or the friend who's saying things like, it doesn't make sense that this would happen to Kurt because he's an experienced swimmer he's a cl and a climber and a diver. But then I'm like, he went he went to, for a swim at 3 a.m. in the ocean. I, I, I'm just saying, I, I don't care how experienced of a swimmer you are, it, it's pitch black, freezing cold water. There's probably all these different swells and stuff in the ocean. I mean... It's not a good idea to go swimming at 3 a.m. in the ocean. So, <laughs> I'm just... what, what I liked about this case was the fact that this Kurt guy, from, from all intents and purposes at the beginning of the show, they painted him to be like this jockey kind of popular yeah. kid. Yeah, yeah. Yet, yet he had this very... Uh, nerdy, this very... yeah, very nerdy uh, lifestyle. Yeah, almost like this this kind of double life, as they say in the segment, with the, the occult. He was fascinated with the game Dungeons & Dragons. He got into it when he yeah, was 10 years old. because Dungeons & Dragons is evil. <laughs> we have to throw that in there, you know, because there was a case, I think, around this time where they tried to equate Dungeons & Dragons with why this, guy, this kid or something did some crazy shit. And uh, well, he would like playing that game, so that's why he did the, these things, as he was well, corrupted. And then that became a movie, a TV movie starring Tom Hanks, called oh, Aces wow. and Monsters. Wow, you know what's funny is like uh, be before they could pin video game violence on shootings, yeah. they 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 had to go to board games because <laughs> yeah, that was the more primitive uh, blaming of a something else. Well, it deals with the occult and, and and you know magic and that's evil and that's automatically the work of the devil, don't you know? Man, man, Mike, it sounds like you have a dog in this fight for Dungeons and Dragons or something. Uh, well, not really. I I, I just. You know, I've just watched, you know, stuff, old, like, uh, propaganda sort of videos back in the 80s that were kind of fun. As, you, as know, we're religious, you know, we're the I, religious Christian people are making videos saying how evil Dungeons & Dragons is. And, I literally uh, hear you hi hiding your 12-sided dice right now. I played it once with my <laughs> friends. That's I was it. holding it for a friend, Dad. It's not my, that's not my <laughs> D&D set. I was just holding it for a friend, I promise. No, it was just once, one time, and I was just, it, it was just, we just, they were just making shit up, and it was just kind of boring to me, and I was like, let's just go back to playing Halo, I'd rather play some more Halo. I mean, it's like anything else, you know, if you have something that's widely popular, there's going to be a few people that get into it who are mentally unstable, yeah. and, you know, and they're going to use... They literally that. think that they're the dungeon master. Yeah, and that's going to be, that's going to be the catalyst that, that, you know, uh, uh, abates their uh, insanity. It's yeah, not the thing yeah. that caused their insanity. So, you know? Kurt, yeah, so Kurt's dad, he gets an anonymous telephone call, which I think was one of, from one of Kurt's friends. And because of this, because he's saying about, oh, Kurt has changed, he's involved in some satanic religious cult thing, you need to do something about it. So Kurt, goes in and searches his son's room. And this part really stood out to me. He finds a deer's hoof, a knife made out of a deer's hoof, a necklace of feathers and bones and shit. And that's like pretty like innocent. But then he finds drawings of witchcraft and violent fantasies, which is, that really does make me, you know, kind of question some things. It's definitely puzzling. And, but I also thought it was kind of unintentionally hilarious, the drawings that they showed. They looked like they were done by, like, a five-year-old. 
Like, it was really bad. It was just, just somebody taking, like, a pencil and just draw what looks like maybe somebody chained up or something. And then, like, cut down the middle or something. It just Yeah, they, they went to the prop department, and they're like, hey, we're doing this segment on, like, witchcraft drawings. Uh, can you, get, can you uh, access the uh, stereotypical uh, violent drawings that are featured in other TV shows where little kids are troubled and it shows their drawings? Oh, yeah, I got you. Don't worry. Exactly. So, um, but yeah, so that, that was pretty, you know, interesting. And then, yeah, he's into D&D. He's also into LARPing, like live-action role-playing. And it's, there's actually like this association that you can join and that's all you do is do LARPing. Like this is this somewhere in like California, I think. Yeah, it was called the Society for Creative Anachronism, yeah. I believe, uh, SCA. Yeah, uh, so he starts jousting in a parking lot and learning how to sword fight. Yeah, and they say they say in the segment that he's wearing authentic uh, uh, like armored suits yeah, and stuff. Yeah, like he from, made. Yeah, yeah, but from the the actual segment itself, I was looking at it. I'm like, this looks this looks neither authentic nor does it look like it's armor. This it literally looked like duct taped yeah, together. It did. Uh, it, it, did. it did not. I don't know if, again if that was the prop department dropping the ball on that or if that's if they are going off of like his actual suit but uh yeah it did not look uh authentic at all i've seen real armored suits yeah. and those things are badass and th this was not badass at all <laughs> it was kind of sad so uh kurt's high school friend then chimes in he says kurt's attitude changed over the six months you know because he was adopting some medieval religion and then he compares his involvement with this group to drug addiction like it's it's so addicting this medieval religion that he can't get out of it and then he introduced Gabriel Carrillo, a.k.a. Gabriel Carotid, and his religious group slash cult. And this, he seemed like the most innocent guy, didn't he, to you? Like, he did not seem like he was going to harm anybody. Like, he just he was a bit kind of into this kind of out-there religion that was, like, dealt with old-school, like, super old-school religious stuff. But he didn't seem like he was, I don't know, some leader of some satanic cult to me. He seemed like a lot of uh, leaders for a lot of these kind of cults. He's very calm, very collected, yeah. very, seemed very reasonable, but, you know, behind but the scenes. But there are some things, though, about his story that I don't really, that sounds pretty fishy. But, for one, this little brief thing that's mentioned that people kind of overlook, he, he, Gabriel, I guess he, it sounds like he took Kurt out on what sounds like a date to me. Like, he says, we went to dinner and saw a movie. Yeah. So it makes you think, like, was there something else going on? Uh, was there some sort of affair? You know, was he, you know, actually was Kurt bisexual? Or was he gay? Like, who knows? You know, that that now that you mention it, because I didn't really think about it at the time, but but it was kind of in the back of my mind when I was watching it that I didn't really think about until now. That that I did think about that. I was, I, I was like... He did what? He took him out to a movie and dinner, and then he spent the night at his apartment. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a big age gap between those two guys. I mean, Kurt was 17 years old, and yeah. this Gabriel Carrillo guy was uh, he looked like he was well into his 30s. So I yeah. mean, it was it a mentor kind of thing, possibly. Uh, I mean, I, I that's just weird <laughs> though. Dinner and a movie. I mean, I've done some stuff with some people that I know that I've volunteered with and stuff like that, but. 
not really anything like that crazy. Like we just see the movie. We wouldn't go to dinner and a movie. You know, I wouldn't stay over at his place. Yeah, you never know, man. With yeah. the, but I mean, the thing about it is, is like his dad did not seem like the kind. Because usually kids do stuff like that when their dad's not around and yeah. their dad's a deadbeat and they kind of need a father figure. But his dad seemed like a really yeah. straight-head, nice guy. So yeah. I'm like, why wasn't why what compelled Kurt to reach out to all these uh, you know associations to try to fit in? Yeah. Because when then that's what makes this story even more fascinating. Because again, from all accounts, he was this jockey kind of popular guy, and he yeah. just got to this other world of uh you know medieval magic and paganism and and he got seduced to the dark side i guess yeah, you could yeah. say and uh and yeah he just uh and the, his friend who was in silhouette for the segment because his yeah, friend was yeah. so so legitimately yeah, scared, of, scared this, of, the, of this organization yeah. because to to make to clear things up there was two groups that kurt was involved in one was the larping role-playing society that practiced in a subway station nerds and the second one was the uh, the more occult medieval magic yeah. group that was that that he joined with this Gabriel Carrillo guy what was the head of and and that was the organization that was thought to be the more yeah. hostile uh, scary one. So, and, and his friend, his friend, you know, I, I remember this quote, you know, where he said things about the group. He says like these types of organizations they don't make threats, they make actions. Yeah. That, I, mean, I thought that was a curious statement myself. Uh, that really stood out to me. And uh, so after, you know, Gabriel took Kurt on what sounds like a date, dinner and a movie, uh, uh, Carrillo then says, this is his story of what happened last time he saw Kurt. He says, uh, Kurt couldn't sleep because he was hot. So he goes to the, he knocks on his door and says, I'm going to the beach for a swim at three o'clock in the morning. I just, I, I don't, that sounds made up to me. <laughs> that really sounds like a flimsy ass excuse, if you ask me. Yeah, he couldn't sleep and he was hot, so he went to swim in the ocean, ice cold ocean at three o'clock in the morning. Like. It, it does sound outside of the realm of possibility, but at the same time, you got to consider the kid's age. He's 17 years yeah. old. You know, kids that young do shit like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I, I I mean I I'm not the kind of guy who ever did stuff like that, but I do know you know like people. Oh my God! Like we went to the beach at like 2 a.m. It was so random, and we just like swam around and stayed up until the sun rose, and it was crazy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I mean, it. But to do it by himself is a little curious. Yeah. But again, if I'm a police officer, I'm a detective. I'm looking at this situation. This is just circumstantial evidence. Exactly. There's, nothing... there's no, that's 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 pretty much what a lot of this is. There's just a lot of circumstantial evidence here. But there's other stuff which I'll get to later, which really seems like there's something else going on. So the following evening, Kurt's car is found at a golf course near the beach, and there were some really puzzling clues that were discovered there. His driver's license was on the floor in the car. His car keys were on the seat. A $20 bill was found in the glove compartment, and his prized suit of armor was missing from the trunk. And there were beer bottles strewn around the car. And this is particularly puzzling because Kurt is not an alcoholic. He doesn't drink. And no alcohol, no traces of alcohol was found in his body after the autopsy. Why would all that be there if there wasn't some kind of attempt to cover up something? 
that might have been a transient. Maybe it was just some guy who was just homeless or whatever, wandering around the beach and decided to get drunk in his car. But why Why is the $20 bill still there? This is this kind of, it kind of looks like it was set up. What do you think? Yeah, well, the nature of alcohol and how it metabolizes in your system, um, Kurt could have had a few beers yeah. and, have it, and have it not show up in the autopsy. He couldn't have had like six or seven, yeah. but he could have, he could have had like one to three, I yeah. think. And, and, and it wouldn't have, uh, showed up in the autopsy. I mean, now from the scene in the show, they made it look like they were scattered everywhere. Yeah. Like he went on a binge. Yeah. So that, that kind of tells me that perhaps there was, there was more than just Kurt there that night. Yeah. He was there maybe with somebody and let's not forget he's 17 years old, so he would have had to have found somebody to get him that alcohol, yeah. or he would have had to taken it. So, uh, yeah, that is a very that that almost certainly suggests that uh, there was somebody else in the picture yeah. uh, who isn't coming forward, you know, with with more details. Um, so yeah, that's so that. then yeah, so then his body was found at a cove no less than two miles away from Karadit's apartment. His body had no shoes, socks, or shirt. His body was also scored with cuts and abrasions, and his belt had no buckle. That was kind of curious, too. Like, okay, would the ocean do all of that? Or it just seems really specific for the ocean to, to do all of that. Or just that's what happened when he fell off a cliff. But again, not impossible. Not impossible. That's that's the thing yeah. here is like it it's it's all circumstantial yeah. you know it's it's it is it likely I mean it's I've seen I've seen segments on unsolved mysteries where a lot more unlikely shit happened and they they were still like well we can't say for sure yeah so yeah. I you know to the cops in San Francisco where they have all these different cases going on they're looking at this and they're like, look, you know, we, we don't have a lot to go on. There's nothing that's sticking out. Uh, you know, it, it seems like they kind of put it on the back burner a little bit. And, and, yeah. and in the case of suicides, they, they are they are cops are a lot more unless there's just something sticking out that just really just does not make sense. Cops, yeah. it, it almost becomes open and shut case in a, a lot of senses with these kind of things. And, and it's almost like that's how they treated it this time as well as it's just like an open and shut kind of thing um but his dad didn't really uh, obviously as most parents his, he didn't want to accept no. that i mean there was a theory that he died falling off the cliff uh the coroner says that he died of acute loss of blood and from internal injuries uh the coroner also said drowning doesn't really make sense because of the cuts and abrasions that were found on his body Kurt's father, because he doesn't believe all of this, decides to go to this coroner himself. And the coroner says that the most plausible cause of death is homicide. But he did not have enough evidence to mark it as such, so he labeled it as an unknown death. And then there came the theories that Karadid and his, Karadid's cult and religious group killed Kurt because he tried to expose the group. But once again, that's just circumstantial evidence. Yeah, and, and, you know, to kill somebody over information that they might have about a group, I mean, this is, this is, we're talking mob activity, we're talking, uh, 
uh, drug rings. We're yeah. talking. Sh- we're talking shit that's going to interfere with someone's illegal money. That's usually when people care about something enough to kill somebody else. Yeah. Over, uh, you know, exposing some kind of a uh, uh, you know big business loophole that they've been taking it advantage of. Seemed like a of. pretty small group to me. You know, from yeah, the, from I what mean, was shown in in the segment, it seemed like a pretty small rinky dink, you know, group that was into practicing medieval religion. Uh, it, it really doesn't sound like they're really that powerful, but who knows? Maybe they they're just. Sounded, just they- they sound like hippies, honestly, yeah. with their medieval yeah. religion and all. I mean, they didn't really sound like the kind of people who who would have these kind of like clandestine operations. Yeah. Like, oh, th- this religion is just an affront to uh, this illegal uh, cocaine r- ring, you know, that we're trying to yeah. do and found out somehow. And yeah. uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I honestly yeah. this this was a really good uh, unsolved mystery because usually with these kind of things like the Alcatraz thing or Roswell, I can say, oh, yeah, 100 percent for sure. You know, that they there's a good chance that they escaped or or that the, the UFO thing definitely happened. But yeah. this it's like, man, I, I honestly can't say yeah, I can't I say either. I don't know for sure. And that's what's so tragic is there's there's possibility that it was a homicide and there's also a possibility there was just an accident but you know tom, tom mcfall you know he has to deal he's the only person still investigating his son's death and i think he's still doing that to this day and that's just so tragic and you feel for him so much because he can't he's not able to put his son to rest finally because you know a lot of this there's these doubts about what actually happened to him a lot of times with these kind of cases, they they there's this old old saying I think in the uh, in like uh, for detectives the the simplest explanation is often the most uh, accurate. And I mean, who knows? Maybe he went out to this beach and we don't know what's going on in this kid's mind. Maybe he saw a golf course and he's like, oh, I'm gonna drive up there. And and maybe he uh, was able, maybe he had a connection that got him some alcohol. His dad said, he's not much of a drinker, but maybe he threw back a few beers and whoops, he accidentally fell off the cliff and it was just a simple, stupid thing, you know? And and maybe the cops felt that was the most logical explanation. But there could have also been like, why is Why was the suit of armor missing? You know, why was that, you know, that's supposedly supposed to be a pretty expensive suit of armor. So why was that missing? So that's the kind of stuff that keeps you going back to maybe it was a homicide or maybe it was a robbery or something or something, you know, that wasn't just an accident. And then there are other things. There are more strange possible connections to the case that are not covered or mentioned in this segment. Now these are complete could completely be fabrications, folks. These are stuff that I found on message boards. So I have no idea about what the validity of these are. I just thought they were kind of interesting because they were supposedly from people who were friends with Kurt or people who knew Kurt or knew some extra stuff about what kind of happened. Uh, and uh, so here's one on the possibility of there being one more than one death or murder at Land's End. This person says, I don't remember that one. I don't remember the Kurt McFall case, but I wish there was a record of all the people who were murdered or disappeared out there for the last 30 years because it will be something like at least 50 or 60. There were quite a few murders out there in the 80s. 
I very much remember the attractive woman who was murdered out there in the 80s, who was slashed about 90 times, and who was screaming her head off, but no one came to help her, though a number of people heard her. I remember that because I str had strolled by that exact spot she was murdered not one hour before it happened. The murderer was never caught. I sort of remember another murderer near there just a few years later. That murderer was never caught either. I also remember the time a couple of people rushed up to me excitedly, which startled me so much. I quickly backtracked and picked up a stone in case I had to fight. They were looking for a high school principal from Oakland who had disappeared. He was never found. And of course everyone remembers the woman in the mid-90s who got, a, quite, got quite a bit of publicity when she disappeared out there and was never heard from again. There's a number of homeless people who live out there too and no one knows what goes on in their minds either. I know that one homeless guy once told me that if he ever got an opportunity, he would cut any park ranger's throat. And he says it, it's not really a safe world anywhere. Anyone could be next. Ooh. <laughs> so that, that one's kind of, you know, I just thought it was kind of interesting. Kind of, you know, these could te just be total creepy pastas. You know what I'm talking about? We would just make shit up because they're bored and they want to add to the legend. So here's another one where there's another friend of Kurt's. Uh, this is uh, he speaks up about the string of murders at Land's End. I was a good friend of Kurt's. I believe he died in 1984, but it could have been 1983. I do, know, I do know it was in September, just a couple days after the start of the school year. Still to this day, I shake when I tell this story. He was a very clean-cut person, even known as a nerd. I hadn't seen him all summer, and the first day of school, a friend of mine had seen him, and he was dressed differently, and he had longer hair. It was just so unlike him. So the second day, I spent all day trying to find him, and I never did. Then an announcement came over the speaker that he had been found dead. It hit me pretty hard, but that is not the weird part. The next summer vacation, I was babysitting for a San Francisco cop's kids, and his wife's mother lived in a trailer park in Clayton. Anyway, she was telling me about this weird lady who lived there who only came out at night and was always dressed in black and who stole meat out of people's freezers that were on their porches. She would also leave these really strange letters on people's porches. One day she let me read the letters they had, they had been collecting, and in one of them it described a satanic killing of a young boy by the name of Kurt McFall. I took this information to a teacher that we had, that we both had had, and she contacted his parents. The cop that I was babysitting for was involved in the raid and on the lady's trailer, which inside was really gross, like with blood writing on the walls and feces on the floor. And the last I had heard, she had given the name of some man in the Los Angeles area who was a leader, but I don't know anything if anything ever came of it. In the letter, she went into detail about them torturing him and pushing him over the cliff. I know it had to be true because she had no way of knowing any of the information that she knew. I also know that over the summer, he had gotten into jousting, which was a new thing. I don't know what the validity of this is. Uh, it could be, but much like the earlier uh, thing. Now, these are stuff that I got from uh, message boards that were talking about the case or mentioning Unsolved Mysteries. So, it, it. But this particular one seems kind of plausible. It seems like he does seem like a sincere person who did know who Kurt was. Although, it's 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 really easy for people to just pretty much just fabricate this kind of stuff to act like oh yeah I knew Kurt you know it's the kind of stuff where you it's kind of like a rumor 
you could totally just spread it around, met a group of friends, and you know, there's no way to really know for sure who this person is or whether or not he really knew Kurt or whether or not there's any truth to any of this. But, you know, it, it's, it is kind of an interesting sort of thing. All right, moving on to our next segment. This was a request from uh, a few different people. This was the Resurrection Mary case of Chicago. Um, this is a paranormal ghost story, obviously. Um, you know, th this one... Uh, this one would be kind of cool to uh, actually see, yeah. don't you think? Yeah, I think it would be. Uh, it's, it would be creepy, but it, it's not like she's Typhoid Mary or anything. It's not like she's going to, like, possess me like Bill Wilkins in Conjuring 2. Or it's like, she's not like the demon nun for that movie. She's going to, like, kill my ass. It seems like, yeah, she just wants to ride. It'd be a story to tell. It would be creepy, definitely. But it would be like, hey, you have a ghost story you can tell. You can say you saw a ghost. How many people can say that? Yeah, she seems she seems pretty uh, benevolent. I mean, yeah. she played she put, played some tricks on people here and there in the in the upcoming story. But I mean, for the most part, she she didn't go into anyone's house or anything. You know, it's she not like was, levitating beds or you know attacking people. It's not like the ghost boy. You know, that, that's... Uh oh, Ghost Boy was horrible. That's probably, like, the most terrifying ghost segment I could think of from this show. I, honestly, I think I agree. I think Ghost Boy was probably, probably my scare... Which, which we, we will get to that one, but uh, this this one took place in the southwest end of Chicago in, in January 1979. Yeah. A cab, cab driver was on the road leading to Resurrection Cemetery, where the name Resurrection Mary comes from, so the cabbie sees a girl standing on the side of the road, and he offers to give her a lift if she could give him directions because he was lost. Yeah. So just over a mile ahead was Resurrection Cemetery. Mm -hmm. The girl's mm -hmm. in the cab. The girl says all of a sudden, stop here. The cabbie parks across from the cemetery's front gate, and when he turns around to look at the back seat, the girl was gone. Yep. Without so much as a door slam, a noise. Just, just disappeared gone. without a trace. And uh, that's one of the many stories they cover in this segment of Resurrection Mary. According to researcher Richard Crow, who's interviewed in this uh, segment, the witnesses are fairly credible, and they're usually like blue-collar guys, you know, cabbies and, and uh, regular people who are not known to make things up. And according to him, the earliest account of Resurrection Mary is from Jerry Palis, who saw Mary at the entrance of a dance hall in Chicago in 1939. He asked this woman to dance. Uh, she was blonde, about five foot seven. Uh, she had shoulder length hair with curls on either side of her head, and she was wearing a white party dress, which is common for the time period of the 1930s. She accepts his offer, and he dances with her. Uh, there's a particular quote that he said that stood stood out to me. He says, "Your hands are cold, like ice. Must be because you have a warm heart." Which I thought was kind of a funny line. It's yeah. like, uh, no, wouldn't that mean the exact opposite? Yeah. That no blood is flowing from her heart? <laughs> That's why her hands are cold, dipshit? <laughs> exactly. So Jerry, you know, gives Mary a ride in his car. She tells him to stop in front of the cemetery. She tells him she needs to get out here. He was puzzled about this, but okay, he's all right, I'll do that. But he, but he was puzzled because you told me your house, you lived back over somewhere else, like not the cemetery, but... She tells him to wait for her. She gets out, tells him wait, and then she disappears without a trace right in front of his eyes. 
And you know, you know, that's Jerry guy, you know, he was thinking to his, to himself when she's like, yeah, I don't want to go home. Let's go to the cemetery. You know, he was thinking, oh yeah, baby. I see what this <laughs> is going. I got me a freaky little goth chick here. We're going <laughs> to do it in the cemetery. Yeah. And then when she disappears, it's like, oh, cock block much. <laughs> Jeez. You'll leave me with blue balls. That's the most I, chilling thing about it. You know, leaves him with blue balls over there. Yeah, his balls were, were icy after that. <laughs> yeah, I swear to God, I, I I think if girls could just disappear on me like that after a bad date, I feel like that's definitely something they would do if they had the ability. <laughs> yeah. She's like, I'm not, I'm, I don't like you. I'm like, they're just sitting, we're, they're just sitting with me at the cafe, and they're like, yeah, like, I make some weird comment, and they're like, yeah, I'm not really feeling this, and then they just dissolve into <laughs> the ether. I'm like, son of a bitch. Not again. It's like the third time this week. <laughs> and what was funny is, like, after that incident happened to him, so this chick just, like, disappears in, like, front of the gates of the graveyard, Robert Stack was like, Jerry was willing to forgive one unexplainable experience, so the next day he went blah blah blah, and I'm like, why? Why would he forgive that? It's like he's like, okay, there you are in front of me, a, a material person, yeah. seeming, and then you disappear. I would like check myself into a psych ward. I wouldn't go to sleep that night. I'd be like, dude, that that typically doesn't happen in real life. I know ever. I'm not drunk. So, yeah. Yeah. Or I didn't I mean, take any drugs. So at least I don't think I did. So that's why let somebody slip some drugs in my drink. <laughs> so the next it was so during the dance, like he was able to get some information from her about where she lived and all that. And the next day he goes to Damon Avenue, which is where she said she lived. He found the house without much trouble. And uh, before he could even knock, the door swung open. Yeah. And uh, he said he was looking for Mary. And the lady, who's an obvious German immigrant in the episode, she's like, uh, the lady there said, there's nobody here by that name. <laughs> and then at, at this point, the guy sees past the lady into her house and he sees a picture of Mary on the on the stand or whatever on TV. And he goes, oh, that's that's the girl. That's the girl that I'm looking for. And then she then the mom says, no, that's not possible. That's my daughter. And she's been dead for five years. <laughs> and at that point, being a former mortician, Jerry realized, oh, that's why the girl was so cold. It was the touch of a cord. Yeah. Yeah, that was a pretty chilling moment. Imagine that realization. But he should have had that realization to begin with. <laughs> it's like, why is, her, why is her hand so cold? This feels I mean, that, very familiar. That would have been weird, but knowing guys, especially like horn dogs, like this guy <laughs> sounded like, he was probably like, whatever, I'll still hit it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll dabble in some necrophilia. <laughs> hey, that's exactly what I'm into. This is a perfect combo. <laughs> so years later, Richard Crowe learned that the ghost was the restless spirit of a young woman named Mary Bregoli. Mary had been killed in a traffic accident one Saturday night in 1934, a month before her 21st birthday. She was laid to rest in Resurrection Cemetery in her favorite gown. And over the years, Mary has been seen time and time again in dance clubs and taxis or strolling around the cemetery looking for someone to take her home. And in 1980, Claire Rudnecki and her friends and her family were driving near the cemetery. She saw a young girl walking. She says she was bright, very bright, like illuminating. She realized it was Resurrection Mary. This made her stomach churn. And uh, they then went back to see her again, and she was gone. And in October of 1989, 
another witness, Janet and another friend, were near Resurrection Cemetery. And what appeared to be a young woman ran in front of her car. And she thought she hit this woman. And she knew that she had hit her head on, but there was no impact. Nothing. It's as, as if she had hit thin air. Like that one, that would be pretty scary. Because right off the bat, you're already terrified because, oh my god, I hit somebody. You know, you're like, that's scary enough as it is. And then, then you have the sudden realization that uh, there's no impact here. I, I swear to God, I saw this woman. I, I, I know I hit her. And then, like, there's no evidence of anything. There's no, there's no impact. And then you think you're crazy. And then you tell other people. And they're like, yeah, sure. Yeah. And then the, and then the friends uh, who you tell a story to, they go, wait a second. Don't you drive a Prius? And, <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. That's why there wasn't any impact. Okay. <laughs> No, uh, all, now all joking aside, though, probably the freakiest uh, part, because I, I obviously I remember the story from uh, being a kid watching on Lifetime or, or whatever, and uh, the 1980s story where Claire, her husband, some friends were driving yeah. down the street and they just saw a girl in a bright gown walking down the side of the road. In the actual show, they didn't they didn't make any mention of this um, in in the segment, but sure. this was just a detail that was in the actual reenactment. When they drove past the ghost and they looked back to the face, it's just this black void. Yeah. So, yeah. like, she's got, like, this blonde hair and this lit-up gown, and then her face is, is literally creepy. a black void. Yeah. I, I remember seeing that as a kid and thinking, holy shit, that is very scary, just to see yeah. a black yeah. void in someone's face instead I, of a yeah. face. That's the stuff that always creeps me out. Uh, it, it's the, I, As people say, the eyes are the window to the soul, and anything that shows, like, white eyes or black eyes or no face or no eyes to look at is is always unsettling to me yeah i mean i think the thing about this case is like i you know i we wouldn't obviously doing this podcast you know we we're pretty much you know believers of this kind yeah. of stuff so we're, we're open to it so i mean i i believe it you I know whatever even like, if you I, weren't the researchers they say it's easy to pick apart one ghost story as a potential hoax but when there's multiple eyewitnesses who see the same thing, who see Mary, I mean, it's a lot harder to discredit this. Right, and especially since these people, quote, have no other claims to psychic experiences. Yeah. I, think that's, I think that's a major point because, you know, a lot of these people who, who, who you might know in person or that you've heard of in the past who've seen a ghost, these people claim that they can read people's yeah. energy claim to be psychics they claim this that and the other but these are like blue collar people with normal jobs and they have no interest or claims to yeah. this world or the paranormal world they were just reporting what they saw uh, they don't even they don't even believe they didn't believe in that at first you know like oh whatever you know that's a bunch of you know bullshit but you know the, a lot of these people that are interviewed on the show they say things like well i would you know i didn't wasn't a believer either until it happened to me so I think, it, I think it's fascinating with a lot of these like UFO stories and these ghost stories, especially like when it happens to these military guys and these military guys are like, I don't believe in UFOs yet. I don't know what I saw. And yeah. that's really all I can say. <laughs> I don't I don't know what it was. I have no explanation for uh -huh. it. Like uh, Rain Same Boy. Ghosts. Yeah. Like, like ra the Rain Boy. Thing. Yeah. That's like the police. The police officer was like. 
I have no explanation for it. You know, I don't want to say what it was or wasn't, but I, I don't know, you know, and that, that to me is that's uh, the most chilling thing, you know, the, the, the unknown, the unexplained. I mean, that's what makes the unknown and unexplained the paranormal and stuff like that. So fascinating, but at the same time, that's what makes it so scary because right. the idea, I don't know. I don't know what it was. I can't explain it. And that's what makes it, it's like a double-edged sword. That's what makes it so fascinating, but at the same time, it makes it so potentially terrifying. Yeah, because, I mean, if any of these people had a viable explanation, they would have provided it. They yeah. would have said, oh, what well, was probably this or it was probably that, but, I mean... And I, I like the whole contrast with Claire and her husband. Like, her husband is, like, interviewed in the segment, and he's all giddy and happy. He's like, I love to drive by the cemetery again to see if I yeah, can I like her. And then the wife's like, I never want to see Mary again. I never want to go near there again. I don't want anything to do with this. And her husband, you know, her husband probably later was like, oh, come on. You know, it's, it's cool. It's kind I of think, sexy. I think, the, I think the thing that makes this less scary than uh, other ghost stories is just the fact that she is out um, yeah. in, in, in like, like outside and she's not relegated to a house. Because if you can just drive past... Yeah. Or, you know, it's, like, less scary than, well, you know, a, a particular house being haunted or something. And she's not harming people. You know, there's that. There's not, like, scratching. You can scratch marks of people or bite marks or possessing people or causing car accidents or anything. Well, it might be. I mean, imagine just driving along the rear mirror, you know. You know, you see Mary, like, would, would I don't know, <laughs> could cause a car accident. But uh, the one thing that definitely the scariest thing about this was definitely the 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 image with the ghost of no face, but you know the black void. But the last words from Robert Stack, and you know, he's just so great at delivering these types of lines of dialogue in just such a way that just sends a chill down your spine. And these are his chilling last words to end this segment. Should you find yourself driving in the city late one night? And you spot a wistful young woman in the flowing gown? You might think twice about offering her a ride. And he's like, ah! Bam! Slam dunk! <laughs> another, another point for Stack. I mean, it's just the way he ends it, too. It's just like, might think yeah. twice about offering her a ride. Like, it's so... He's fucking great. I mean, yeah. I know writers wrote that line for so him, but nobody, nobody can deliver... Nobody oh. could have delivered it like that, you know? Because it's it's mysterious at the same time just downright terrifying. <laughs> There's like that meme that goes around, like it says, you know, like in the 80s, you know, this guy. There's nothing scarier than this guy talking about mysteries that no one ever solved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was good. I, I liked that meme. Uh, do you got anything else on this one? Not really. Uh, it's just, it is an interest. I can see why it stood out to certain people because of certain imagery and things like that and how many different witnesses saw it. And it, it does stand out because it is one of the more benevolent sort of ghosts. It's not really a ghost. It's like, I'm going to, you know, like the Tallman house, like you're going to die. Oh you know, my it's God, like what a that. contrast. I know. It's just like, give me a ride. And then... <laughs> All right, and then stop here at the cemetery. All right, bye. And then where did she go? Oh, I think I just saw a ghost. <laughs> cool, I guess. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to be able to sleep tonight, but I don't think she's a banshee or anything. 
All right, moving on to our next segment, Outside of the Paranormal. This is uh, an icon uh, known as the King of Rock. Uh, the King, baby. Elvis's Last Night Alive. Uh, this was an Unsolved Mysteries segment that uh, I always personally found interesting, probably because I'm a musician and uh, I just find rock stars and the whole lore of being popular in the public eye fascinating, especially how it tears you apart and most people never last when you're at that pinnacle of success. Um, and this is basically exploring um, two sides uh, of, of Elvis's death. Um, did he die from a heart attack or of natural causes or did he commit suicide? Yeah, because the first reports that came out said that he had died of a heart attack. And then later it was said that he died of an overdose. And then he has uh, some of his beloved, you know, friends and family come in and are interviewed in this segment. His stepbrother is one of the main ones. And he says he believes that Elvis committed suicide. And either way, you know, however Elvis died, he, he still died on the toilet. I mean, just think about how embarrassing that is. Like for yeah. the king of rock and roll... You know, think he'd die on a different throne. You know, not the porcelain kind. It's just, he, he died on the shitter. I mean, how? That's, that's. Like, I like your notes, uh, in, on on your notes for this, it just said, found on the shitter. He died <laughs> on the toilet. And then in parentheses, it says, how embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Can you, can you imagine Robert Stack just saying, and Elvis was found on the shitter. He died on the toilet. How but embarrassing. <laughs> so okay so uh his his, his stepbrother david stanley was first uh interviewed in the segment and he's saying that it's suicide and then you got this other guy who is uh part of elvis's inner circle called red west who's saying that there ain't no way that elvis would have done that he was deeply religious he yeah. would have never taken his own life so elvis's drug addiction or or it was crazy whatever. like he had this daily routine where we'll get into We'll get yeah. into that, but it started off when he was drafted because yeah. Elvis actually did serve time in the military, which I always personally was kind of impressed by. That in 1958, that. yeah, he was uh, drafted into the army and he was sent overseas. And his sergeant uh, at the time started giving soldiers, including Elvis, drugs to keep awake. I'm probably guessing that was probably some sort of amphetamine, like speed right. or something, because that right. was legal back then. And, oh, really? Uh, I believe so. I don't think it was like you could order over the counter. I remember in the 70s, there was this whole scandal and stuff of truck drivers who were just taking speed, you know, to stay awake and stuff like that. I mean, I could be completely wrong, but I remember like it just being it was it was some it was kind of easy to get. And, you know, there was a lot of rash of accidents and stuff like that. And eventually they put a stop to that because of all the accidents that were happening with truck drivers because they're yeah that's one thing i was thinking about i was like geez this is the u.s military and the damn sergeants giving them illicit drugs but i guess if it was legal then he didn't know any better yeah it's like adderall nowadays <laughs> yeah so so that was his first foray into drugs he took it when he was on on the uh the the russian front you know helped him stay yeah. away um then when he gets back he resumes his career and his he did a lot of b movies yeah. that 
are of little regard, but they earned a lot of money. They are very profitable, but it made him depressed. Because I mean, he, he wanted, wanted to be a serious dramatic actor, which I never knew. And that's it. That, that is pretty, that explains why he spiraled into depression and, and went further down the rabbit hole in terms of, you know, drugs is because, you know, he, he, he's, he was a very popular guy. He, he was, and you would think he would be able to do what he wanted to do. Everyone said, you know, you're Elvis, you can do anything. And he, he really wanted to be a serious actor. And his producers were like, no, we don't want you to do that because there isn't any money in that. Meanwhile, they, you, yeah. meet, you have the music side of it where he has the, the crushing demands of his fans yeah. and, and, you know, thinking that he is a, an actual king and, yeah. and, you know, we, we had yet to see a pop star of that caliber before that. So, you know, all, they got all these guys on there going, oh, he's Elvis. He can do anything. Well, I, I kind of think the inverse is true. I think he was because of who he was, yeah. he wasn't able to do anything. They said the idea and, that being Elvis was the worst thing about being Elvis, which I thought was really. That was a helped. great quote. Yeah. From David Stanley. Yeah. He said the worst part about being Elvis was being Elvis, you know, seeing a, a, a sea of people thinking you are king, you know? And so, so basically he would stay in his home in grit, which is also known as Grace. Yeah. His mansion. Yeah. Yeah. He surrounded himself by paid friends and they were known as the Memphis mafia, which I, I, I just, I find that funny. The Memphis Mafia. It's just like, it's a cool title, but at the same time, you're like, is that really what you call friends? But, you know, <laughs> I mean. Yeah, well, they were paid, you know, they were yeah. paid, they were, you know, like most people, when they get into these, these, this kind of level of fame, you really don't have any friends. It's you're, like Michael you're Jackson, too. I mean, it's the similar sort of thing that is probably, you can look at Michael Jackson and, you know, he was, you know, Elvis was Michael Jackson before Michael Jack, you know, Jackson was the king of pop. So, you know, it's just, it's, it is one of those things where he is just a man, but people looked up to him and saw him as some god. And how could he ever possibly live up to that or, you know, be a god? He's just a man. And that's got to be something that none of us, that's something that not very many people other than really big popular people like Elvis or Michael Jackson could ever really experience or know how to deal with. So, and I don't know if I want to, I mean, it's like, no. the, I wouldn't ask, I wouldn't want, I don't want that. You know, no, I mean, it, it's, it's one of those things that like, you know, Kurt Cobain is the same kind of instance. Yeah. It's like, yeah. I mean, was he a drug addict? Yes. But, I mean, all the fame and, I mean, this guy was already mentally screwed up as it was. I mean, the fame was just that that catalyst that, that just really pushed him over the edge. But, I mean, all these guys, um, the ones that make it out alive are the lucky ones. Yeah. I mean, you look, at, you look at people even like MC Hammer and Vanilla Ice who were at the absolute pinnacle of stardom in the early 90s and how... You know, I've watched that VH1 Behind the Music series. I, I always really liked watching that show growing up. And they would all talk about how as soon as the money dried up, the friends dried up. You know, like as soon as you, you weren't the party anymore, then they moved on to somebody else. And, mm -hmm. and this is after these people have taken care of all these guys. They brought them out of poverty or they, they took their friends along for the ride. And 
you know, it's like it, it becomes one of those kind of business relationships, you know, to where like as long as you're able to pay me, then I'll, I'll be around. And yeah, that's got to be a lonely alienate experience. Are you hanging out with me because of me or are you hanging out with me because I'm Elvis kind of thing? Yeah. Um, Michael Jackson or, or whatever. Um, but anyway, he basically became a shut in and turned to more drugs. Um, and he had affairs with his wife, you know, with other people and, you know, other women that, and he went further into the drugs and spiraled further down into drug abuse. And that led to his wife, Priscilla, divorcing him. And of course, then this just caused him to go further, even further into depression. He had bouts of anger and he became so addicted to these drugs that he needed to be under supervision at all times. Right. And that's when the group of men known as the lifers came into play. And these were a group of people who played into Elvis's every need. Um, you know, Elvis needed to be woken up at a certain time. Elvis needed to be fed his his cheeseburgers and his French fries. Elvis, yeah. had, Elvis needed his drugs. That's what these guys would provide. And um, they would provide it in what were known. This is this is what I thought was most fascinating. The attacks. Like, yeah. The attacks. So basically, Elvis would be in his bed and, you know, attack one, two, and three. They all consist of the same thing. And these were drugs such as Valium, Dembutol, Quaaludes, Demerol. Um, yeah, Demerol. I mean, like, the amount of drugs this guy was taking. So, like, attack one, for instance, would be, like, 11 sleeping pills, three shots of Demerol, yeah. you know, uh, all kinds of so, other drugs. you know, it was about the equivalent of 33 sleeping pills a day, nine shots of Demerol. And this is like six months worth of drugs. And this is all in one night. One night. I, I mean, yeah, one day or, you know, the guy said one night. That's the qu I quoted directly from what uh, his stepbrother said in the segment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, 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 and he was Elvis was a mess. He'd fall asleep with food in his mouth, you know, sometimes choking on his own yeah. food. And, and it's like I, I've known some people personally who have been on some pretty hardcore stuff, they need it for pain or whatever. So it's not like they're a drug addict per se, but, uh, yeah. you know, I, I, I know that experience all too well of someone that you care about falling asleep with food in their mouth. And that's, you know, you're constantly on edge about that. Cause it's like, well, they could choke at any time. And I mean, that's, that's why these guys were around to like wake them up in case this was happening. And, um, that's definitely sad. That's a side of Elvis that his fans, probably wouldn't even think of let alone want to believe right and and this was this was the innocent you know this was the innocent uh like like six like 70s when this was kind of going on yeah. you know well you know maybe not innocent but you know the fans of elvis probably were more on the innocent side in their thinking so they they were like oh well he's you know the american poster child and this was before instagram social media youtube yeah. all that shit so there was no there was no way to get any information on him, even if you wanted. He could control his public image yeah. a lot better than they can nowadays with the paparazzi and all that. So his friends and family, they tried to intervene and get Elvis to stop taking these drugs, but he wouldn't have any of it. In fact, he actually pointed a gun, I think, at his stepbrother. But his stepbrother's like, I knew he wouldn't shoot me, but, you know, it was still, still something that was, uh, you know, pro still was probably pretty terrifying. And right, that's, that's he said he would not stop. 
Yeah, he realized that, you know, this guy's got a big drug problem. If he's if, if I'm trying to talk him out of doing drugs and he's going to hold a gun in my face and say, you know, essentially, fuck off, get off my case. I need yeah. these drugs. It's like, whoa, OK, you know, we got we got us a, a, a problem here. Now, and I mean, yeah, all this was further compounded by the fact that despite the millions of dollars that he had made over the years, he was short of money. He was overweight. He was now impotent as well. He was supposed to be this rock god, you know, and he's impotent. I mean, that's the complete opposite of the image that, you know, people looked at him as. He was even he was considered a sex symbol to a lot of people, you know, with the with the gyrating hips and stuff like that back in the day when that was risque, you mm -hmm. know, and, and he's impotent. That's got to be a huge blow to his ego and to his psyche. And they were his, his producers and promoters are trying to get him to do a new tour and make all this money. He was not looking forward to a new tour. He was at his lowest point. And then his former employees of his were about ready to publish a book that exposed this secret life of taking drugs and being in poor health called Elvis. What happened? And this terrified him uh, that his clean image would be tarnished. Because here, here he is going out on this tour, overweight, looking like shit, yeah. with with the knowledge of what this book contained, and, and it's like the fans are going to know. The fans are going to know everything, and, uh, you know, it, it he was... He was in a dark place and it pushed him even downhill even more. And he'd have these moments. Is it worth going on? You know, do I yeah. even want to live another day? You know, and. Um, and the last time Elvis's stepbrother saw him, he says uh, he said goodbye. He said this with tears in his eyes and he said that I love you. Uh, but you will never see me again. The next time you see me, it will be in a higher place and in a different plane. And that's and that's stepbrother David Stanley, the one who is who is uh, making the accusation of suicide. Mm -hmm. So that that even more backed up kind of his feelings yeah. about what happened. So here's on Elvis's last day. These were kind of curious things that happened. Uh, he ignored his usual late night feast. And he was given his three attack envelopes, but he left the drugs completely untouched. He went to the bathroom to read around 9.30 in the morning, and then Elvis's body was found a few year, few hours later dead. Uh, his stepbrother then finds all three of the attack envelopes separately strewn on the ground, and he believes that Elvis took all three at once and killed himself. But there's this other, this doctor named Kevin Merrigan, who studied the coroner's toxicology report, and he comes to the conclusion that Elvis died of severe cardiovascular disease, not by a drug overdose. But now, one thing I'd like to interject here, um, you know, these shows like Unsolved Mysteries, any kind of documentaries you see, this is a common practice. They'll go out and they will find they will find an opposing opinion. Yeah. Uh, they will hire somebody or pay somebody to come on the show who is in an unofficial capacity and give their their professional opinion. This yeah. guy was a clinical toxicologist, and he studied the public autopsy report, and he said, oh, yeah, no, I didn't see it, you know. 
But there's so many instances, uh, you know, there was a documentary on um, Kurt Cobain's death, and, and they're basically trying to say that Courtney Love killed Kurt Cobain. Yeah, that documentary, yeah. <laughs> set, in, set into motion. And they, they, had a, uh, they, they had a guy on there, um, a, 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 a crime scene investigator on there. But come to find out from my research that I did, this crime scene investigator, who was supposed to be the, their main flagship kind of, hey, you know, Courtney Love really did it, because listen to this great CSI we have on here. Uh, I did some further research, and this guy has been, has been very controversial. He's been on pretty much any program that'll pay him money to kind of give the opposing conspiracy theories ah, uh, kind yeah. of a point of view. And, and this was the guy who they had on the show. Now, everyone watching this documentary doesn't doesn't know that information. They, they just see this guy who is older and seems to be a seasoned crime scene investigator. And they're like, oh, wow, this guy brings up some valid points. But they don't know his leanings towards the conspiracy yeah. kind of things. Because this guy was involved in the Kennedy assassina assassination case, too. And he was one of the champ championing guys of the uh, grassy knoll theory. So going back to this segment, you know, when they have this clinical toxicologist on here telling that, oh, yeah, uh, it, it was a heart uh, it, a heart problem or something like that. You know, I just take that and I look at that as like, OK, they need they need another opinion on this segment. So it's not yeah. cut, you know, but so. at the same time, he's looking at a public report. He's looking at he's he is an expert on toxicology. So I think if you did have some evidence that pertain that okay it was a drug thing then i would think you would see it there but then again you know i don't think there's definitive proof of either well i mean there's i'm leaning more towards natural causes at the moment but it's because of severe drug use over the years and his health and things like that and stress stress is a huge number on people and i've i've actually seen people in my family who their health has deteriorated so much because of the stress that they're dealing with. And I've seen people who have clinged on to life long, really way longer than they really had any right doing, considering how severely uh, ill they were. But it's because of their will, strong will to live that they just dragged it on. But when you're dealing with this type of stress and you're depressed and you're in a dark place, you kind of lose that will. So who knows what that does to the rest of your body? Is that, does it affect your, your, does, if you lose your will to live and you're already in bad health, does that affect, you know, sort of how your body naturally uh, goes through, through things during the day and, and stuff like that. I, I, I wonder sometimes that's something you can't really prove. So we can't prove that stress does, does make certain health uh, problems more pre prevalent in your life. But you can't really prove, okay, when is what happens when someone loses their will to live? My whole thing is, is I believe that Elvis OD'd. I think that yeah. he took all... I, I think, I that think he took, yeah, there's definitely I think he took all, all three attacks at once, uh, you know, because according to David Stanley, his stepbrother, you know, he knew the physician's desk reference. You know, he, yeah. he, knew, the, he knew those pills would take him out. And, you know, Elvis if it hasn't been made clear yet, had a severe, severe drug problem. Yes. I mean, probably yes. probably worse than any 
any of the big guys that you hear about, like Jackson and Kurt yeah. Cobain, and shit, you know, Kurt Cobain was shooting up heroin, but I mean, Jesus, Elvis was a walking pharmacy. <laughs> 33 sleeping pills, you know, a day, nine shots of Demerol. Like, even so, that would cause some severe heart problems, even before he took... What well, I mean, I not only that, but but the 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 chemical makeup in your brain uh, of of t- ingesting those many man-made chemicals, the the biological shifting, you're not going to be thinking in your right mind. No. I mean, the 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 detox process alone from that much medication would have been months and months yeah. of severe um, detox and. I mean, for him to, I mean, there's just no way you can be clear-headed when you're that, when yeah. you're that fucked up. I mean, good Lord. I mean, uh, and that's another thing with people who, who commit suicide, like if, if drugs are a factor, I mean, you're, you're not thinking in your right mind, well, you know? Whether, yeah, whether it's drugs or alcohol, it could be alcohol too. Right. Alcohol is a oh, drug yeah. as well. So, um, yeah, I, I, it is one of those things where one of the guys says only Elvis can tell you what he was thinking on his last night. But if you're going by what you're saying, maybe even Elvis can't tell you <laughs> because he was so well, hopped he, up on freaking drugs and shit. Like it just didn't really, even he might not even know what he was thinking. He could tell you, but it, 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 it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be the, the right way of thinking because you know, yeah. the, the human brain, Depression is a symptom of of a, of a bigger problem. Mm-hmm. The human brain, in general, is all about self preservation. It doesn't want to die. That's why we feel pain when we get burnt on yeah. the stove. The human body is all about preserving itself and not dying. It's because, chemical imbalances and things that happen that cause right, thoughts that's, that. That's, and, it messes up your way of thinking and your thought. And if you give into that too much then it can take you down a scary road. Yeah. But, and, and which it obviously did with, with Elvis, given all the other kind of situations he had going on. Because, I mean, this is another thing that people don't think about with these big stars. They're not just making an income for themselves. They're making in, an income for, you know, throngs of other people who work yeah. under them. I mean, even even the, the roadies that, that have work when Elvis goes out on the road, you know, that have jobs, you know, I mean, they, they, they have a lot of people that they're having to support and take into account. And then I they got to worry about the, the record producers, you know, worry about them too. I mean, right. Hey, when are we going to get another record, Elvis? When are we going to do this and yeah. that and the other? I mean, yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the dude had a lot resting on him and, and, and him being the first uh, kind of trailblazer uh, as far as the fame and the, success because they're like i said they're not really been someone as as big as elvis because i mean i mean if you if you need any proof elvis is still huge now oh yeah i mean (laughs) how many people from that era besides you know your johnny cashes and your uh you know um um god damn it uh buddy holly and all that yeah I mean, that's that's like you could probably think about ten people, but but there was like hundreds of acts. Yeah, there was like this like really clean cut white guy that everybody remembered, and it was a who made a lot of was it Pat Boone? Like who remembers Pat Boone nowadays? Right. <laughs> like, I remember yeah. him. I, I vaguely remember him for his like cringe-inducing metal cover. Like he did covers of metal songs. Really? Yeah. Oh man, I'm gonna have to look into that. <laughs> 
Yeah, but like, you know, th- this guy was just, uh, you know, larger than life. And I mean, you know, you go to Las Vegas today or anywhere else and you still got Elvis impersonators. I mean, you don't have, you don't have. Uh, Elvis isn't dead. There's a lot of people who, you know, they think they are Elvis. So, Hell, you I, know. <laughs> I think Unsolved Mysteries did a damn segment to where talking about how Elvis was still alive, oh, yeah. if I'm remembering correctly. Well, I think that was the one where they're talking about maybe maybe it was Unsolved Mysteries where they said like, oh, the gravestone is like has a misspelling on it, and Elvis had some secret twin brother, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Yeah, they definitely did one about his twin as well, um, which didn't so much focus on the fact they might still be alive. But um, anyway, um, Vernon, his father, commissioned a private autopsy to be done, but the the curious little caveat to that is the results are sealed until the year 2027. Yeah. So in another 11 years, <laughs> when I am 39 years old, we will discover <laughs> definitively and me and Mike will get together and we'll reunite. <laughs> we'll do a recap. We'll, we'll see. We'll see if that happens. <laughs> But uh, yeah, that's 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 the that's the long and short of it. Um, I think fame killed him. Yeah, you know that's, you know, some people look at fame and I, I that's what they want. They want it more than anything. But I think some people don't realize that what comes with fame. I mean, look at the young girl Christina Grimmie who was shot to death by a supposed fan of hers. You know. Even having YouTube fame can lead to, you know, a lot of issues, a lot of problems. It's... I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it, it's... Part of me is like, I want a little bit. I just don't want to be the biggest star, you know, out there. There's just too much... There's too There's too much associated with that. It's... You have too... Your expectations are always going to be way too high... And so high that you can't even live up to them. Uh, and it's not really your expectations. It's everyone else's expectations of you. And because Elvis is so famous and had all this money, he was able to have access to all of these drugs that probably either did kill him or eventually led to the complications that ended up causing his death. So you can't make the argument that fame did kill Elvis. Elvis left the building because, uh, you know, why he was in the building to begin with. So I think that does it for another one in the can for uh, Uncovering Unsolved Mysteries. Yep. Um, you can uh, leave comments on segments that you'll like us to yeah, review. Definitely, this definitely. One... Uh, leave requests on uh, the videos, on uh, the comments down below, uh, what kind of other segments you'd like us to cover, or on SoundCloud or wherever else you're hearing or seeing us yeah the soundcloud's doing really well we're getting a lot of plays off there so whoever's listening uh, i appreciate yeah, it and definitely we do we have fun doing this and uh you know it's it's uh it's always nice to know that people are listening um we're gonna what i personally want to do with the podcast in the future is like you know any co- i want this to be the you know all-encompassing unsolved mysteries resource for people so if we find out any current news about the show or Sorry for the abrupt cutout. Um, the music kicked in at that point in the podcast, and uh, yeah, had to get rid of it. Sorry, folks, but I was pretty much just saying that I was trying to make uh, that the podcast a resource for all things, um, 
you know, mysteries of an unsolved nature, or an unexplained nature, I should say. Anyway, have a good night.